Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and I have special guests with us today, Jay Richards. Jay Richards is a professor in the School of Business and Economics at the Catholic University of America, a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute, the executive editor of The Stream, and host of EWTN's TV show, A Force for Good. He's also the author of many books, including New York Times bestseller Infiltrated and with co-author James Robison, Indivisible. He's also the author of Money, Greed and God, which you can hear us talk to him about that book in episode 65 of our podcast. He has a Ph.D. with honors in philosophy and theology from Princeton Theological Seminary. Today, Jay is here to talk to us about his new book, The Human Advantage, The Future of American Work in the Age of Smart Machines. Jay, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me again. So you're very busy, I can see, because of your bio and just knowing a little bit about you from reading some examples that you brought out in the book. Are you are you sure that you wrote this book or is this like some deep experiment to like test out whether we believe AI can tell us that AI is not a threat? Well, if I've done that, I'm going to be doing a heck of a lot more. I'm not I'm not nearly wealthy uh, <laughs> enough to have an AI that can unfortunately write books. But um, you'll be the first to know if I manage to pull it off, at least at the moment. Uh, long nonfiction books are, are not likely to be automated, though. If all you do is write the sort of news uh, about what the stock market did during the day, I would be worried about my job because we actually have, <laughs> have machines that could do that already. <laughs> OK. All right. Well, um, I, I really enjoyed your book. Uh, I read it in a little under a week. Um, it's a, it's slightly over 200 pages, which is kind of optimum length. I think you mm -hmm. told me that it's a good uh, flight across the Atlantic and you can be done kind of book. So. One of the reasons I really like the book is because it covers a theme that I am interested in, but I feel like if I were to go to some other authors to get into the deep weeds about AI and the future of mm -hmm. AI and singularity and will robots take our jobs and all that kind of question, I feel like it would just be too much over my head. And what you do is you actually bring in, I mean, as your title says, the human advantage, you you bring in like, why should we care about this, which we'll, we'll kind of elaborate here in a few minutes. Um, but... You know, I grew up, I, apparently I'm called the Oregon Trail Generation. I don't know if you've ever heard that term. No. It's like a couple years in the early 80s. Now I'm giving away my age on on, yeah. on my podcast, but that's okay. Uh, in the early 80s, there's this thing called the Oregon Trail Generation, and they are a very small part of the millennial generation that is fluent in and were able to watch the transition from analog, a, a predominantly analog world, mm -hmm. to a predominantly digital world. So I have the advantage, and, and I'm not saying every, no, but not nobody else has this, but the, the sure. idea is that we're characterized by people who have the advantage of understanding what the analog world was like before digital took over. I yes. remember life before CDs. 
Mm-hmm. And that is kind of funny because people who are now just becoming adults probably don't hardly know what that is. Yeah, what uh, CD? Which is, <laughs> right. We used to make fun of people with cassette tapes. <laughs> yeah, and it's like the, the, the CDs and DVDs, it turns out, were transition technologies as well. Yeah, yeah. So I am very interested in the digital world and where it's going. I mean, every single time I see something like becoming more digital and more automated, I don't intuitively think, well, that's going to cause problems. Yeah, I'm like, well, this is amazing. I can't believe this exists. Why? Man, I wish I would have had this when I was younger because I knew that it was coming. And yet it just, you know, the technology wasn't there. So uh, what's interesting is we're able to see a lot of this transition happen, which I think is partly why you were able to write this book, is that Mm -hmm. the creative destruction is happening before our eyes, the Schumpeterian creative destruction. And so your book is a lot more than just about talking about AI and whether or not it's a threat to our, our well-being. Uh, it's about humans. A good way to get started is possibly ask you this question. What is the third American dream? I had never heard of, honestly, you, I mean, you talk about the American dream in three parts. So yes. be a good idea to start there. Definitely. And I mean, this is something actually that my publisher pressed me on because they said a lot of people are worried about that. And President Trump has been talking about the American dream for 30 years. He was talking about it during the election and after the election. And so I had to go back and read the literature. The word, the term American dream comes really just from the 1930s. But there's a long literature on this that essentially describes this kind of near universal aspiration that Americans have always had. Alexi de Tocqueville noticed this in the 1830s. This French liberal comes over from France to find out what's the deal with Americans. And he notices that they're all sort of poor by uh, French European standards, at least, or his, his aristocratic standards. But he also noticed that they all had this strange sort of optimism, this kind of anticipation of, of future glory and future success. And so what if, if you were to sort of ask the normal freeborn American, uh, say at the time of the American founding up and through the 1800s, they would have told you that their, their goal essentially was to own a family farm. This was just something that transfixed millions of people that immigrated from the United States. If you came from a little later Uh, In the immigration patterns, you came from Ireland, you were almost certainly a tenant farmer at risk of starvation. You might end up in the city in the Northeast. But overwhelmingly, Americans had this dream of owning a family farm. And it continued all the way even into my grandfather on my mother's side in Texas in the early 1900s. So at that point, all the good farms had been taken. Most of the good farms had been taken by the time of the Civil War. And so he just ended up working jobs that sort of related to farming. And then by the 1950s, what happened is we went from at the time of the founding to 95 percent of the population lived and worked on farms uh, to 1900, about half the population. By the mid 20th century, it was halved again. And so the idea of a family farm actually no longer loomed large for people. What loomed large was actually owning a home. Most people either lived in cities or near cities and suburbs. So owning a family home was actually the, the, the kind of aspiration. And you see this, I think, most beautifully in the wonderful Frank Capra film, It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart. It's literally, it's about the American dream circa 1950. And yet, if you ask millennials these days, or even the generation that's just now graduating from college, they don't talk about owning homes. I mean, they may think, okay, it's part of a plan, I'll eventually have a mortgage but it doesn't figure prominently as a part of their vision of the future. And if you ask them, it tends to be something uh, more amorphous. But what I call the third American dream is essentially uh, the desire to be able to create value, both for yourself and others. And so, I mean, I I teach at a 
university. And I can tell you that kids, whether they're going into business or they're going into ministry or uh, they're an engineer, they, they really want to do something that they see as valuable and as meaningful. And that's sort of tough in some ways because it's not quite as concrete. But I think that's also a really that's a good thing, because I think the truth of the matter is uh, high technology actually allows us many more ways to create value in all sorts of different ways for our fellow human beings in ways that these kind of earlier stages of economic development do not. And so that's really what the book is about. Yes, there's major disruption coming. Uh, it's hardly even gotten here. It's mostly still five or 10 years out uh, by my reckoning, but there are going to be a heck of a lot of other and newer and be even better ways to create value uh, for ourselves and others. And that's good news, especially when that's the thing, if you ask 20-somethings, is what they most value. They want to do something that's meaningful. You also discuss in the book the concept and the origins of the term information, and it has a kind of long history about how, how it's flowed from very, very slow moving to very, very fast moving. Can you give us a synopsis of that? Definitely. I mean, this is the beating heart of the book. It's really, it is my argument against materialism. That is this worldview that matter is all that matters, that everything can be explained in terms of atoms colliding with atoms. Uh, I, I, I think it's false. I think we can make good arguments to, for why we know it's false. But I also think it's really a s silly philosophy to have in an age of information. Information is not matter or energy. It's a third thing. And we, and we know this if you think of a text, you know, you open up a book, open up my book, um, it's there's nothing in the ink, uh, the sort of laws of physics or the, the 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 chemical laws of ink and paper that tell you anything about the information that's on the page. The information it has to do with the particular sequence of the letters strung along in a particular way, uh, which has a meaning to minds, so that we as agents are able to communicate using text. But if the laws of physics dictated, say, what ink was going to do on paper, ink and paper would be a terrible medium. For information. And so that's this kind of simple illustration that the information itself, yes, it's embedded in matter, it can be transmitted by matter, but it's not matter itself. And this is always ultimately what, what information is about. It's about the kind of constraint on the sea of possibility. Uh, there's a range of possible things you can do. Let's say in the case of writing a text, there's lots of ways in which you can arrange the text. Only a few of those they'll actually convey any particular meaning. In fact, the vast majority of arrangements of text are complete gibberish. That's really what information is about. And so information, um, the way I finally boil it down after going through Claude Shannon's theory of information as surprise and some other folks, is that information is a combination of complexity or improbability on the one hand, and what you might call a specification on the other, or what I'll just call a meaningful pattern. It's about meaning. And that is ex that's what agents, that's what conscious beings like ourselves that have freedom, we are able to create information. Machines are not. Machines can be deeply informational systems that re represent the meaning that we give them, can transmit and store information. But ultimately, uh, what agents and human beings can do is to create new information. And as I argue in the book, that's actually what 
value creation is all about. The first time some caveman thought, hey, you know, if I chip these rocks together in just the right way and have uh, some some dry kindling underneath it, I can start a controlled fire and I can I could cook some meat. That was an informational act that that man was constraining the things that nature could do on its own and was channeling it toward uh, a meaningful outcome. And so even you start certainly way off, way back with the kind of simplicity of that act, which is really mostly it's a little bit of human input, but it's still mostly the physical capacities of flint and, and paper and wood. Now, transport us to the 21st century in which it's almost all information that matters in terms of value creation. So you think about, uh, let's use a CD or a DVD, which is already an antique example, but but imagine a blank DVD, a Blu-ray disc, uh, and then ever imagine one that has a unique copy of Microsoft Word on it that, that Microsoft has just produced. Well, one is worth a few cents at best. One is worth probably a billion dollars. And yet physically, they're basically the same thing. You couldn't even tell them apart by looking. That's information. And, and that is why I think the information economy, it's not going to be something, it's not going to be an economy that's going to replace human beings. It's going to be an economy that's uniquely fit for human beings because we are ultimately information creating beings. So when you were on with us in episode 65 to talk about your other book, you kind of mentioned this book that was on the horizon about to be published. And I actually thought it was a book kind of explaining like really, really, really like dedicating your like all 200 pages to convincing mm -hmm. me that robots aren't going to take our jobs. Yes. Your book actually is way more than that. And so uh, which is why I'm really glad that you're on to talk about it, because it's more <laughs> than just like, oh, the robots won't take our jobs or AI won't, you know, make us obs make us obsolete. OK, there you go. Uh, yeah. it's, <laughs> there's <Great>. there's <laughs> more to it. Uh, I want to get to that in, in a bit, because you do talk a lot about virtue uh, in the mm -hmm. age of machines and what does it mean to be human? So the to start, though, we, we have to talk about is the American dream actually under threat? And if if it is like, what is the potential threat or what are the alleged threats even? Yeah, the alleged threat is what you mentioned just there a second ago, is that uh, we're told that machines are just about to take at least half of our jobs. I mean, there's a lot of experts. I list them in the book and quote them that say essentially in the next 20 or 30 years, we're likely to have about half of the population unemployed because of this kind of vast buzzsaw that's coming with automation. So artificial intelligence and robotics that's going to replace, um, yeah, like about 50 percent of the jobs that people are currently doing. This is presumably going to lead to an apocalypse, at least socially. And almost to a man, uh, experts that write books about this tell us that this is why we need a universal basic income, because people aren't going to have jobs. Uh, they're going to need to get money from somewhere. And so the government should just start cutting a check and preferably start doing it now. This is this division. Well, and you talked about the um, the income gap being a problem mm -hmm. because the people who are going to be building these robots and, and making AI better are going to be the ones who get really wealthy while the rest of us don't have anything to do. And that, that's part of the problem. Like I had never heard anybody tie income inequality or wealth creation disparity, if you want to call it that, uh, yeah. tied into the reason why the singularity or robots taking over our jobs is a problem. And therefore, we should use universal basic income. I had never seen anybody make that connection before. Yeah, and that is the basic intuition that you see if you read Rise of the Robots by Martin Ford is this worry. And it's based partly on a truth. Uh, in uh, high-tech economies, uh, especially things that involve networks, there are network effects so that you can sort of think that they're, they're power laws, which mean that 
you know, if you have the best traffic app on iTunes, you're going to get most of the customers because the more people that are on a network, the better the network is. And so you don't want to be the ninth best traffic app uh, on, you know, on iTunes. Right. It's not like Unless the you're ninth. the best traffic app for some very specific purpose that people yes, need. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's highly specialized, but it's not like being the ninth best singer. You're still going to, ninth, ninth best singer in the world, still going to have an amazing career. It's not true for network technology. And so it is true that high technology tends to lead to these kind of winner take all scenarios, at least among competitors. And so people will notice that and say, well, gosh, so you're going to get people like Larry Page or Jeff Bezos they're going to get unbelievably wealthy and pull away from the rest of us. Of course, what people forget is that the economy is not a zero-sum game. And when these guys get wealthy and do it by creating value for everyone else, we shouldn't be worried about it. The gap is not the problem. We should actually be worried about poverty. But if people forget that, they sort of imagine that, well, Jeff Bezos is taking all the money that was there uh, before. And so it's always important. I mean, you know, as you know, from having read the book, half the book is just reminding people of really elementary economic lessons, because very often, I honestly think a lot of this debate and worry about robots taking all the jobs um, is based on the one hand, it's based, I think, on a very bad philosophy of materialism that assumes computers become conscious and become just as we are. But it's also uh, bad with respect to basic economics and history. Well, you could have made these same kinds of arguments at the time of the American founding. 95% of the population is working on farms. Maybe in the future, only 2% will work on farms. So that means most of the population will be out of work. Well, of course, that's not at all what happened. What you had is disruption. Price of food goes down, and then people's labor was freed up to do something else. And turns out people are 10 times larger population now, and people uh, have a much better standard of living than they did at the time of the American founding. So there's no reason in principle to think that that's not more or less what's going to happen again. And I think that's actually what's likely to happen. Well, and the difference, though, in in current day is that we are on the near vertical line of the growth exponential growth curve. And you, you mentioned that in the book and that that's yeah. that gives us reason to pursue certain things as opposed to like pursuing the government to do wealth distribution and all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Yeah. So your, your book was and, and I'm, I've already mentioned this. Your book is good for someone not just wanting to know about this problem and why it's not as much of a threat as we might expect or as the, as the doomsayers are saying. Mm -hmm. But it's actually, in some ways, your book is not just a what-to-do book. It's also a little bit of a how-to-do book mm -hmm. because you actually get into how to develop certain virtues. And so why don't you talk a little bit about like what, what virtues are we, are we talking about here? Because there's a distinct human advantage that robots will never have, despite what Westworld creators will want you to think. <laughs> Okay. Uh, and anybody who's seen season two already knows that that's not even <laughs> okay. we, how, how did that turn out anyway? Uh, so we have a distinct human advantage. We do. So talk to us about that. And what does that mean for us? It doesn't just mean we can sit back and be like, oh, well, they're never going to take our jobs because we have an advantage. There's something we have to do. There is something we have to do. And I think the kind of key to this is to first say, OK, what is the information economy like? What are the real features that it has? How is it different from other uh, economic stages? And then what do we need to do to optimize ourselves to that. In other words, what we need to do is prepare and focus on our comparative advantage on those things that machines can't do. So, you know, I, just the, the things I say that are sort of, if not unique, distinct about uh, information economies, it's highly disruptive. 
Uh, there's exponential growth, at least in the tech sectors. Um, it's uh, it's digital. In other words, it's m- stuff moving from the world of atoms to the world of bits. It's hyper networked. Everybody knows what that means. And it's ever more informational. That's what makes our this economy different from previous stages. Well, it turns out there is a there's a human virtue that corresponds to each of those. And a virtue itself is actually something that only free agents can acquire. A virtue is basically to develop a virtue. You have to decide as an act of the will that you're going to act in a certain way. So you start in the mind and the will. It moves you with your body to do something. And then you do it over and over again. And then that becomes a habit. And if you keep at it, that habit actually works its way back inside you so that you become in a sense, more than you were before, so that it becomes automatic. And so my argument is that actually what you need to do is cultivate uh, not just the ordinary virtues of punctuality and kindness and uh, don't do drugs and stay out of jail and stuff like that. Cultivate the virtues that optimize you for this kind of economy. So because it's going to be highly disruptive, that means, you know, if you're sort of not very courageous and are hoping you can just do four years of college and be set for 40 years, that's not good. You need to actually cultivate the virtue of courage, which is a willingness to fail. But just being willing to fail is not enough. You also need to cultivate what I call the, the virtue of anti-fragility. I get this term, of course, from Nassim Nicholas Taleb, which just basically means uh, not just that you fail and not just that you sort of survive during failure, but when you have uh, a disruption or you have experience failure, you actually benefit from it. So in other words, you learn how to ride the learning curve of failure so that you actually become better the next time. That's absolutely crucial because not only is it disruptive, it's exponential in terms of its growth. I argue that you also need to develop altruism, which doesn't mean that you sacrifice yourself to the needs of others necessarily. It does mean that you focus on the needs and the wants of others. That's always true to be a successful entrepreneur in the market economy. You need to be able to say, okay, anticipate what people would want if you produce it and then do it better than your competitors. But we now live in a world in which we're hyper-connected. We can create all manner of digital goods, all different kinds of ways to create value for people. And so I think people that are actually orient themselves in that way, in that altruistic way, uh, are going to have a bright future. And then collaboration. It should be obvious that the virtue of collaboration, it corresponds to the fact that we have a more and more hyper-connected world and economy. Collaboration just means a willingness to learn from others and to benefit from working with others. Uh, and so that requires a type of humility. Uh, and then finally, what I call creative freedom. Creative freedom is its actually a virtue. Freedom is, you know, initially, it's something that we simply have as creatures made in the image of God. We can choose between alternatives. But real freedom isn't just oh, choosing, I I can choose uh, vanilla rather than strawberry ice cream. That's a very minimal kind of freedom. True freedom, what I call creative freedom, is the kind of freedom in which we virtuously constrain ourselves in order to develop some kind of skill. So for instance, I I use the example of a little girl. She might be free when she's four years old to sit at the piano and plunk out some notes on the, on the, the keyboard. She doesn't know how to play Rachmaninoff. She's not free to play Mozart or Bach. The only way she could acquire that type of creative freedom is by constraining herself, practicing diligently for years and years and years. And then she has a skill, uh, a, 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 a virtue that she didn't have before. And so I really, I argue for freedom, but a robust kind of freedom that's not just merely getting to do what you want to do. Those are the virtues that I argue will optimize you for for success rather than failure in an information economy. Hey folks, Norman Horn here from LCI. 
Would you do us a quick favor and rank us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe to us? High rankings helps us get the word out there. And now let's get back to the show. You know, those virtues have a lot to do with individual pursuits, things that you can cultivate within yourself, regardless of whether or not you're interacting with others. But many of them have to be others centered or others involved. And there's a there's a section in your book about the myth of the rugged individualist. And I am glad you talked about this because I think for for libertarians, we are very individualistic in terms of our methodology of how do we how do we ascertain a way to communicate political ideas mm-hmm. and where are the constraints? And we think about that through the individual. If one person is being oppressed, we say no. You know, we, right. we say no to that policy. Uh, and so you talk about the myth of the rugged individualist, partly because Ayn Rand has given people the reason to believe that libertarians are only individualist. I mean, it's yes. a very pernicious myth. It gets brought out a lot. I can understand people's hesitancy toward libertarianism if that's what they're exposed to. Right. But. I mean, I know that some people have pointed out that Mises's human action very rarely talks about that and talks all kinds all the way through about collaboration and come in and working together with people mm-hmm. like that's where libertarianism is sort of founded on is like we're not only ourselves. Right. We're not hermits. Uh, so tell what's the myth of the rugged individualist and why is there no such thing as a self-made man? Well, it's the, the easiest way to sort of answer that is to just say that no one is born um, with the exception of Adam, who's created directly from God. No one's born as a fully formed human being. We're born as babies. Ideally, we're born into families. We're uh, not nearly as developed as, say, a baby chimpanzee. In fact, babies would have the gestation period would be about two and a half years just to be as developed as a chimpanzee. Compare that to a horse, which can stand up 10 minutes in some cases after it uh, comes through the birth canal. We are designed, God designed us not, yes, absolutely as individuals with our own natures and our own, our own purposes, we're distinct from our surroundings, but we are by nature, by God's design, we are social creatures. The first story in Genesis is first the man and the woman are created and then they have children. And so this idea that we're going to be just be these kind of isolated self-made individuals at founders at the very beginning, we would all be dead. We wouldn't be having this conversation unless we were born in to organic social communities. And if you're going to talk about virtue, I think this is really important because most of the virtue that we developed, we initially learn either in in churches and in families and neighborhoods, in voluntary organizations and uh, Boy Scouts and you name it. Most of the virtue forming institutions are not government institutions. They're civil society and private institutions. And so I think that's really, really important. And I do think, as you said, I think it's important to, you know, I don't know who who's necessarily reading the book. But I do know that most people that go to read a book by a free marketer like me assume I'm going to argue for some kind of arid radical individualism. Well, I'm going to defend the individual as having intrinsic dignity and rights. But as a broader philosophy, I think that's it's misconstrued. And as you said, even even a lot of the great free market libertarian thinkers, I mean, anyone that champions the market order is championing a type of human cooperation. The reason I like markets being able to do as much as they can do rather than the coercive power of the state is precisely because it's a well-known way in which humans can cooperate with people whom they don't know directly. And so I just think keeping that in balance, on the one hand, yes, we need to defend individuals in, in their rights and their integrity, but also remember that we are intrinsically social beings. Yeah, the accusation that we're too pro-free market and that we're too individualist don't actually uh, make sense. They're self-contradictory. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> so people listening might be wondering, well, 
you know, those are great virtues to to develop, but they don't know where to get started. And there, there's one key aspect of what to do, and that has to do with the power, kind of the magic power of networks yes. and networking. Where, where does somebody start? Honestly, part of it is uh, you know, what I often, when people ask me, I've spoken to high school students, uh, is first I honestly directly talked up to them about their, their spiritual state. Because, you know, if you're, frankly, if you're sleeping around and you're doing drugs, uh, you're not likely to succeed. And so there's still this kind of ba- basic pathway to success. If you graduate from high school, go to college or trade school, don't have kids until you get married, don't do a bunch of illegal drugs and stay, <laughs> and stay out of trouble, you're very unlikely to be poor. On the other hand, you do have to, I think, ask, okay, what could I do that I'm maybe interested in, but in my particular location, I could do that would actually create value for people and that people would pay me for. I think that's the more important question than what am I passionate about? Because what you're passionate about at any particular moment, first of all, that's fleeting. It's based upon your limited experience. And it may or may not point you in the direction that allows you to actually create value. It may be that you're passionate about playing World of Warcraft for 15 hours a day. And I can promise you, you're very unlikely to get somebody to pay you to do that. And so my my argument is to actually focus on ways in which you can orient yourself to create value for people, whatever it is. In some sad circumstances, maybe it means starting work at McDonald's, or maybe it means using free tutorials online on Khan Academy in order to learn a skill that you don't have. I'm not saying your passion and what you're interested in shouldn't matter. It's just that if you find yourself creating value for someone, uh, that itself becomes exciting. And so your passion, very often, if you ask people that just have ordinary jobs that they love, very often, the passion followed the fact that they found something that actually allowed them to create value. This, this idea that 300 million people are just going to kind of follow their bliss and find financial success. I just I think it's a little far fetched. So, Jay, we talked about the universal basic income a little bit earlier and that there are some future predictions that wealth inequality is going to get really bad. And it's also a topic amongst libertarians and Mm -hmm. libertarian ish organizations. And and I don't want to, you know, deal with pedigree of who's libertarian, who's not based on whether or not you advocate for universal basic income. You you come down against it in your book and why it's a really Mm -hmm. bad, why it's a pretty bad idea. I'm able to be convinced personally that it could work given all Mm -hmm. the circumstances of the people like Charles Murray, who actually propose, well, if we do this, then do that, then it'll work. Otherwise it won't work. You know, I'm, I'm able to be convinced, but it's a very risky venture. Mm -hmm. And so give us the idea, like, what are the, what are the alleged benefits of a universal basic income and is it being experimented in any in any real sense around the world anywhere and why is it probably bad economic policy it is there are some sort of isolated experiments uh, why combinator in california is doing a limited experiment it was done in uh, in in finland there was a uh, a vote actually in switzerland recently to implement it though the the public actually voted it down the basic idea is just that the government would give people a direct cash payment every month so it wouldn't be means tested like our 80 means tested welfare programs where you have to show that you you need say uh, food stamps or something like that everybody would just get a direct cash payment and the basic idea is that there's a lot less administrative nightmare, which is true. I mean, if we're just cutting a check, this is essentially a, a job for the Treasury or the IRS. and You don't need this massive bureaucratic apparatus to dole out all the kind of complicated uh, uh, approval processes you need for means-tested welfare. And so if the option were, OK, we're going to get rid of all means-tested welfare programs plus Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid and Obamacare, and replace that with a cash payment of $13,000 per person, 
That's Charles Murray's proposal. Hey, I'm, that sounds like an improvement to me. Now, I still think it's a bad idea for government to do these kinds of things. But if that were the, those were the alternatives, I would say, let's go for it. That would actually save us money. It would have far fewer perverse incentives for people. Um, the problem is, is that seems completely unlikely. I mean, it's we practically kill ourselves politically just reforming one uh, welfare program. Now imagine zeroing out all 80 of them, plus all the entitlements that people have paid into and think that they're entitled to. That's just not going to happen politically. So what's likely to happen is that we're going to get a universal basic income on top of all the perverse incentives of the welfare system that we already have in place. And that's, in fact, what most of advocates of the UBI, the universal basic income, uh, are proposing. That, to me, just sounds like a really good way to take all the perverse incentives of the welfare state and spread it from a poor underclass to the whole population. This is just a terrible idea. If you understand anything about human nature, if you believe in the fall, it's a bad idea to pay people not to work, which is essentially what this is. And so my argument is that, you know, if, if we're going to do something, then let's figure out a way to subsidize work rather than non-work with earned income tax credits or something like that. I'm assuming that there's going to be, you know, we're not going to just zero these things out. That's my, you know, honestly, if I were a benevolent dictator, I really don't think the government should be involved in this kind of stuff. But given that it is, um, we do not want to subsidize non-work. That's essentially, that's a good way to get more non-work. So we'll have the government giving people enough money that they can kind of get by and then they'll have some side gigs and work in the gray economy, probably, and never have a really strong incentive to focus on meeting the needs of others. Because I think the reality is what we, we, we want those incentives to be lined up. We want people to have to say, look, if I if I you know, if I'm going to get paid, I need to orient myself so that I'm serving the needs of others. And, you know, there's only a couple of ways to do that. And I think the market mechanism is a pretty darn good way of getting us oriented toward the needs of other people. So anything that undercuts that, like a universal basic income, I just think it's a terrible idea. I think some of the people who advocate this, and again, I don't know if they're just saying, hey, that we know this is a good idea, or they're just saying, well, you know, if we did this, there would be some of these positive ramifications. For instance, uh, people who are not on welfare could not, le I mean, at least in their situation, people like me, I'm not upper class, but yeah. I would not be able to have the Look, I, I don't look at people like this who are on welfare. I don't have this. Mm -hmm. I used to. And I know a lot of people who do to look at people. And go, oh, they're just drawing off the dole and something like that, because everybody would be like there'd be some social benefits more so than economic benefits in that people feel dignified mm -hmm. because at least they won't go hungry. Uh, because they have, you know, this this universal basic income. And then the people who kind of look down on people receiving welfare can't quite do it because well, they're getting the money, too. <laughs> That's and, right. And and it's also fair to, to point out that even Milton Freeman sort of danced around with this idea as well. I think it was like a, neg a negative income tax is what he he proposed, right? That's exactly right. And, and Hayek proposed something like this, too. So it's not like this is just a left-wing idea that yeah. has a pedigree. I mean, Charles Murray self-identifies as a libertarian, though I think his is a much more austere proposal. I just think it has zero chance of happening <laughs> politically. And so, you know, but the problem is that in the last couple of years, I noticed there've been about a dozen books more or less connecting the coming automation with the need for this. And what I was fascinated by in, in researching this book is, is that the same arguments we made way back in the 1960s, President Johnson got a letter from this group of scientists and left-wing activists in 1964 telling him that the cyber nation, that's what they call it, a cyber nation revolution was just around the corner and all the manual labor jobs are going to get taken by machines. And so 
We needed, you guessed it, a universal basic income. Well, he didn't go for that, but the very next year, he started his Great Society initiatives, which just sort of bequeathed us this, this vast welfare state. Jay, one of the quotes in your book that like really stuck out to me is kind of summarizes why your book is necessary to read is uh, the path of wisdom in, in the way forward is to see both the costs and benefits in every technology and then work to mitigate the cost and milk the benefits. <laughs> that's it. That's, that's great. That's essentially the lesson. And unfortunately, when you're dealing with young people, they notice only the benefits of new technology and not the, the costs. And older people start noticing all the costs, but not the benefits. So I think we, we need to just, that's the reality is that we make technology. Don't look at the technology as good or evil. Look at how humans use it and uh, and focus on on benefiting from the good stuff and get getting rid of the, the bad stuff. Jay, thanks for writing this book and thanks for joining us for the podcast. My pleasure. Great to be with you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Music